All right. Welcome to NDA. This is a show. <laughs> this is a show where I talk to uh, creators, people who who make stuff, uh, kind of about this business and, and the way we do things, the way you do things, the way I do things, and it's. Um, I've often tried to frame this as if there's an argument, there's some core tension. The truth is that we'll find things to disagree on because I think that's more interesting. I think that too many shows like this are spent with two or three people sitting around just agreeing with each other for an hour, and that's not very fun. I would much rather explore the things that we we maybe don't have common ground on yet. Uh, we'll see. We'll see what we where we <laughs> get uh, in that regard. Uh, is that why this table is so big, so that... Your punches can't reach me, Dave. For the, for the, I can't quite get across. Uh, yeah, for people who are watching the video version of this, uh, we we realized we spent some time reframing, literally reframing the shot, because at one point before you got here, we realized that you and I would have been at the far edges of the screen, the far edges of the screen. Because this table wide is shot. very big. Yeah, uh, the it, like it goes for fifteen feet in that direction. It's like that that table from. First Batman movie, yeah, like or a, The Incredibles, like yeah, an yeah. endless <laughs> hall of table. But I'm very excited to have you on because I think you occupy an interesting space in the the pantheon of of creators because you have the potential, I think, to do something that many other creators have not done yet. I think you have the potential to blaze a trail for others. I think you're playing the game in a very different way. Um, and one of the most interesting things, and this, I've never told you this. I'm saying this to you for the first time. This is, this is the first time I'm saying oh this. Um, you do something I've never seen another creator do. Which is? You are polished. Oh you Because I sent a Google Calendar invite? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, what I mean is that um, you're a professional. Oh, thank you. you. Every interaction I've ever had with you, when, whether it uh, is talking about like stuff for jet lag, season eight available now. Any conversation we've had about the business or uh, any time we spent together, it is clear that you are a professional entertainer who regards this as their career. You are not the sort of the caricature of a YouTuber is like a dipshit dilettante who just kind of does stuff. Uh, a lot of our industry is made up of very young people who were successful at the very first thing they tried, and they don't have the scar tissue that comes with with failure. And th there's an assumption that the first thing I ever did was massively successful, so everything I ever do will be equally successful. I'm just that great. And uh, people with a little bit more industry experience or people who have uh, experience working like corporate jobs, they have a bit more scar tissue, which is great for like being resilient when things don't quite go right, but I think it also changes the way you approach, the way one approaches the building of relationships in this industry, uh, build the, the way you approach uh, the, the projects that you work on, the level of professionalism, and uh, it has always struck me that you seem like an actual adult, a true professional, <laughs> doing this because you see this as part of a, a larger career, not just you deserve to be a successful YouTuber. Oh, well, I, uh, that is such a generous compliment, and I really take that in. Thank you. That is That means a lot to me to hear, so thank you so much for saying that. See, even I that, mean, like taking the time to thank me, like you're thinking, like that is <laughs> that is a good relationship play thing thank, to thank do. Thank you. Oh, my God. Not everyone does. Well, I, you know, I feel genuinely that like all of those aspects that you very generously complimented were honestly out of necessity for me. Mm -hmm. I'm not somebody who 
found success in high school or college in this industry. Um, I mean, like, and 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 so just by nature, like I have, you know, I've worked as people's assistants. Mm-hmm. I have, uh, you know, worked in and corporate structures like at Google or at studios. And again, that was just out of necessity because whatever I was doing by myself wasn't working. What I really found is that there are creators who are just excellent at the technical side. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, I'm fortunate that with our team, we have like our, our team is very good at that. But me in the beginning, I did not go to film school. I did not know how to use a camera or anything. And so my competitive advantage was being organized and, and bringing together a group of people and, um, you know, making things happen in the operational sense. Yeah, operations um, and organization. Yeah, and so when you have no of the none of those technical creative skills like I did, I really had to lean into that, again, out of necessity. And it's kind of just, I guess, become a meme now that I like Google Sheets and Google Calendar. That's a good thing. <laughs> like Behaving like an adult, I wish more creators would do this. Mm. Uh, when we... Uh, I think it was the first time we met was at Disneyland. Is that the first time we met? Potentially, yes, earlier this year. That was so fun. It was around VidCon mm-hmm. we, we go. Um, after that day, I forget who I was talking. It might have been Sam. I was talking to somebody, and they they asked what my impressions were of you. And the exact phrase I use, which I stand by, I, I <laughs> only feel this more since then, is polished but not rehearsed. Oh, thank you. And that is really <laughs> hard to do. It, that, huh. that is like what you expect from like an interaction with like a mainstream celebrity is that they've had media training. They understand that there are things you say have, and things you I, don't I say. I would love media training. Can someone please media train me? This Our publicist day? is right out there. Okay, great. Awesome. Uh, the, the, the way that, that someone who has that kind of media training would approach a conversation or approach, uh, I'll give an, ex, uh, an example that isn't real, but like you're the sort of person who would send a thank you card? Oh, uh, I I love I I, I don't Wait, know. No, that like, is real. You've it, you've done that. Like you've literally done that. Yeah. You are that person. That is a thing you do. Many people in our industry wouldn't. I think uh, some of that is age. But again, and some it, that it is, comes is, from is, the learnings I have from the from the other jobs I've worked. You know, when you are someone's assistant, you're sending thank you stuff all the time. You are, uh, you know, and you're in tough situations where you're apologizing on people's behalfs. You are um, rearranging people's entire schedules and making, you know, changing the physics of the universe for a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, I just have so much respect. Like, in my opinion, the hardest job, period, on any set is a production assistant role. Anyone who has done that, anyone who is currently doing that, I have the utmost respect for that position. Do you, Every time. So you're saying, and, and if you are, I agree, uh, that the the advantage you have is you've done those jobs. You you have empathy and perspective. I think you can have these skills and empathy and perspective without having done them. It certainly I helps. learned them by, uh, again, necessity, just starting there. Um, I did not start as a content creator first. And so I, you know, I entered in the the mailroom way, if you will. Um, and that, the, the, that's, that's good. Yeah, yeah. I wish, I, not that I, I wish to, to have, to see anyone toil, right? But like scar tissue, like this stuff matters. Like, well, it's have, like when you know someone, um, you know, you can tell when someone has worked 
a service industry job. Yeah. When you when you go to a restaurant with a person who's been in that position before. Yeah, yeah. They like, tip differently. They experience the room differently. So mm-hmm. I think I think it's important. I mean, like I worked for other creators before I had my own channel and 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 saw various things. And I learned a lot from those experiences too. But I think like honestly, again, when I didn't have those creative competitive advantages that a lot of my peers did and the best creators, like they are artists first. Mm. I mean, we all are artists first. Um, but I was not definitely not the best artist when I started. Um, and and so I, I guess, what am I trying to say here? I'm trying to say, <laughs> okay, well, let me preface actually that we were out very late last night. So if I don't say anything, if I say something that doesn't make sense, it is uh, Dave, Sam, Ben, Adam's <laughs> fault. So I'm just going to say that. We, well, um, <laughs> we joined a biker gang while <laughs> you we were did, out. We did, we did. If you're watching, I w- came wearing a leather jacket and Dave decided to put one on. I but. joined her, her gang. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, like uh, something I, I remind myself of is like people will never remember what you say or what you do, but how you make them feel. And hmm. I I don't know who said that, um, but maybe it was Dr. Seuss. I don't, know. I don't again, don't quote me on this, but it's it's an amazing amazing phrase that when you're a starting creator, you may also you know. You're probably f- light years ahead of where I was when I started. But if you feel that you're lacking some of those skills that you want to grow, the best thing you can do is be a great collaborator. And that is something within your control. Mm. The, in- the barrier to entry to be a good person and a-, and a great collaborator is very, very low. The barrier to entry to being fantastic at camera and editing and whatever and all that stuff is is much higher, I think. And I find, at least with our team, we like working with people who we like working with first. Skills are learnable, um, but heart—you have to find that yourself. Yeah. You can't. You can't always teach heart. I think yeah. you can sometimes, um, but teaching heart is a lot harder than teaching a skill set. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. We've done a thing over the last few years here where, in the very early days of Standard, we had a rule against hiring creators because we wanted church and state, right? Like. We work for the creators. At no point should the creators work for us. That that messes up the dynamic. I forget exactly when it changed, but like we, hi, uh, I think Dom, one of our, our MoGraph people, one of our producers, the guy's amazing. Uh, we we hired him and signed him at the same time. So there was like, so he was an employee and a creator. Yeah, wow. still still is. Okay, um, and we found that his perspective as creator lent a lot to wh- the way he approached work. Uh, and the way that he interacted with others. And over time, uh, we kept like one step at a time doing this. And even uh, Mike, producer on the show over there in the corner, I, I know him because we made records together. He was my band's producer. He produced every record my band made. And we had such a great working relationship. Then when it came time to, okay, well, how do we do these things? Um, I knew exactly who I should call. And coincidentally, he was uh, you know, uh, early covid couldn't really produce stuff, so he just got into making YouTube videos. So it's like creator, employee, uh, and worked out great. And we keep doing this, and what we've learned over over time, and now up to our chief creative, uh, chief content officer, uh, Sam, creator. What we've learned is that every single time we do that, things only get better. Because having the experience, I'm going to talk about Mike like he's not in the room, uh, having the experience that Mike had, but not knowing how to do this specific job running a studio, whatever, I don't care. 
Like he had all of the skills necessary to be excellent at this. And he, he understood what the dynamics here were. His perspective as a creative person made him interesting. Learning the differences between audio equipment and camera equipment, super teachable. And it was barely any time at all before he was running cameras better than I ever could. And you know, time goes by and these things build up. And now um, Philip, uh, our marketing person, Volksgeist, he is a creator uh, and has been with us for years. We bring him in to start handling marketing stuff and it's the best path we've ever taken on marketing because he understands the perspective of the, because uh, talking to creators about like, you know, building out the their uh, sponsor reads at the ends of videos and stuff like that for the Nebula reads. He's had to do them hundreds of times himself. So he knows to go when he's talking to a creator, like what their experience is and how they're feeling about it. Uh, yeah, that that empathy and having been through it, it's such a game changer. You can't you can't teach that experience. You can teach somebody how to write a, a slightly better email. You can teach somebody how to use a camera. You can't teach them how to care. It, it becomes clear when you collaborate with someone and their heart's not in it. Mm-hmm. Or if they're in it for the money, like if, their their primary driver. There's certainly been people I've worked with where. I feel like they were on the mission, but they were on the mission because they were getting paid. And then there's people who like, they're ride or die. And the ride or die people, even if they're a little bit less technically proficient, you just get so much more out of them. Yeah, yeah. And and they in turn hopefully also receive a lot from the experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, um, I think, a, a misguided notion that the people who work for you should always work for you. And that if they move on in some way, that's a failing. Uh, I see it very differently. And I was talking to, um, oh, okay, I'll use, they just did layoffs, so we'll talk shit. Uh, Vox, I think, is a great example of, there's a lot of amazing talent that comes out of Vox. Yeah. And when those people leave, is. Vox pretends they never existed. I find that weird. Why don't they like, bring people back in and like, let the relationship evolve? Because it's certainly the case that, like, I don't know, in the early days for Johnny Harris or for Cleo Abram, that pedigree really mattered. And I think to a, d- a degree it still does. But why, why would Vox not want to celebrate that these amazing people are coming out of Vox? Why wouldn't Vox want to be seen as, like, the talent incubator making some of the best, um, you know, digital video journalists in the industry? Why wouldn't they want to have that as as Part of their thing, but no, they they just try to pretend like, well, those people are gone, so they're dead to us. Mm-hmm. That's so strange to me. It yeah, it, it it even happens in traditional TV. Like you hear the stories of former child stars who were stuck in contracts on their respective sitcoms mm-hmm. growing up, and how they feel about that afterwards. Um, and I think there's always a strange relationship between a studio and its talent when the talent via the studio finds independence. And I mean, like, it's one that I'm, you know, I, I think like your reference to Vox and, and the talent who are leaving, it's a good example of. And also like, you know, those the channel I used to work for is, is one where I, I think like there have, that, that continues to be a struggle historically time and time mm. again, I think. Do you think, uh, if you imagine someone on your team, someone who works for you, they uh, learn a bunch, they're inspired, they go off and they start their own thing. 
Do you see that as a competitive- Like they become a creator? Mm -hmm. Hmm. Do you see that as a competitive move? Do you see that as a loss for you? Or do you see that as a changing of a relationship and you've put time into building an ally? I think it's naive to assume that when someone comes to work for you that it will be for forever. Mm -hmm. However, I think like anytime the relationship changes, someone moves on, et cetera, it's, it's an important learning opportunity for both parties. Mm-hmm. Whether it's like the organization has more to do to maintain talent and to offer an opportunity that keeps talent excited to be there or, or otherwise, like the same, same with the talent and like the talent may be realizing like, oh, you know, I have other dreams and goals that are coming up through the work that are taking my heart in another direction. So I think like more so it's like, it's just an important learning opportunity for both sides. How many people on your team? Currently we have, like without getting into like the details of everything, generally speaking, nine okay. people who are- Like some freelancers, you say general, so there's like some well, coming and going. There are seven people, including myself, who are there, you know, full, full-time, full-time. And then we have two people who are like regular part-time. Okay. Then beyond that, we have freelancers. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So the like the managing the the scope of that team, there's a lot of different kinds of relationships. Yes. And uh, you have an operations person specifically. Yes. That is, I think I told you the first time we spoke, uh, the fact that that was one of the first things you did was bringing somebody to handle the operation side of this. Again, well, <laughs> that's that's like that's an experience move. Thank you. I mean, again, out of necessity, I think many creators, anytime you get to a point where you have income available or revenue available to uh, make a new hire, you're going to oftentimes be between like a leadership role and an executionary role. Mm-hmm. And... I think in the beginning, you want the executionary roles a lot because you want people who can take things off of your plate and like help directly increase the output, view count, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, for me, it was like, I feel that if I don't do this, something will go wrong. <laughs> uh, maybe not. I Maybe I'm like, ridiculous in saying that, but I also felt like we had a really special opportunity to work with someone, Nick, who's our head of operations. And I just- great, by the way. Yeah. And I felt like he's an extremely talented person. And technically he had never done an operations role before, but he's an incredibly gifted producer. And I was like, I feel like you can do this if you want to do this. And luckily he did. Um, And both of us have learned a lot in, in the past- you know, almost a year of working together, but important, important growth. I think like hiring the right people who also challenge you is really exciting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, one of the one of the first pieces of advice I was given um, when like turned this into a real company was uh, Julie from Complexly. Uh, we we grabbed lunch and she said, first thing that you need to do, hire a COO." And I said. <laughs> What does a COO do? <laughs> You're a COO. <laughs> a what, do, what do you do? What, does that, do? what does that mean? What does that mean? And then she kind of like walks through some of the operation stuff. And, mm-hmm. and 
I kind of pushed back, like, I don't know, do we need that? Like, this is, it's intended to be a boutique sort of thing. I don't know. Um, but I took the advice. The first hire was a COO. And uh, our COO now, Gemma, is, is um, she's been with us for six, six years. Um, she's on maternity leave at the moment. And I feel like I'm walking a tightrope without a net, like just <laughs> waiting for her to come back because there's a million things that people are coming to me and asking wow. me now. And I'm like, I don't even know what that is. Like there's an entire mm. company being run. Uh, I've, I've said for the last several years that the the job of a CEO is to lead the company and the job of a COO is to run the company. Mm-hmm. And that is a distinction that I wish I could help others understand better because until you've had a really great operations person running things for you, there's this instinct, I think as creative people and as people who like, we can have something to prove, right? Like I think anybody doing this kind of job as a creator we're trying to prove to the world that we can do. We're trying to prove to the algorithm that we're we're worth going and finding more audience. We're trying to find. Uh, we're trying to prove to the audience that we're worth watching a second video, or continuing to watch the first one. It is natural that we'd be kind of control freaks about that. Mm-hmm. We want our stamp on this. We have to do the work. We have to do the work. Well, I mean, from a practical perspective, in in my experience too, a lot of creators. You um, some some people find success slowly while they're working another job, and that's mm-hmm. uh, definitely a, a, a version of this that I recommend to any new creators. Do not quit your job; like, definitely stay at it while you grow so savings in a process. Um, but some creators, you you have no choice; you have to jump ship, and your back's against the wall. And when you have a company of one, and you have seen everything, and like. You have been like you are the last stopping point for all the success and the failure of the company. Um, it does make it hard to let go of things. I think that's the and, exact and reason. And it's a luxury. It's a luxury to get to let go of things. It's it's a Absolutely. massive luxury to have an operations person in in any company. I think, and and I also think sometimes that that hesitation and grip is is correct. You know, there what do you mean? in, How in so? the sense of wanting to oversee and make sure things are done correctly. Sometimes those instincts are correct. Sometimes I've learned myself that those instincts for me are me not letting go. And so distinguishing between those two things as a leader passing things off, sometimes you make the right and wrong calls on like, I can let that go. Like everybody's got it. And, and then you're like, oh, oh no, I should have, I should have double checked that. Yeah, um, I, I and know learning that, that the hard way is is a growing pain of any business. But that's that's again that scar tissue. You're gonna like you now have learned that the hard way, and you know whatever the scenario is, um, you let something go, and now you're suffering the consequences of you not having oversight. But don't both you and that person now learn and grow, and the next time you can yeah, make I mean, a better Nick mistake. I have learned and grown a lot. I mean, any of I mean, this time last year, our team was. Three people, and now it's nine. Wow. Um, you know, which is a big jump for me, at least. Not not for every company. I mean, some YouTubers grow by fifty people every month, and that's insane to me. Um, and probably not necessary or well, <laughs> even healthy. But yeah. You know. um, but this has been a, a big year for growth. I feel like the focus has been really inward, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And you can't do it all. Like you have to. You only have so much time in the day. You have to focus on today or this time is for internal company. Tomorrow is for external. What are the videos? 
mm-hmm. are we going to get views? What's the best idea? You know, and I think a lot of creators, myself included, you're learning how to do two jobs. When you actually hire more people, you gain a new job. Mm-hmm. You gain a new job of leading, of managing, of learning how to pass things off. And those are, like I, I, I went to management training because I was like, I need to figure out in a corporate setting, like what, how do you do this? Like how do you give critical feedback? How do you have one-on-ones with people? What do you actually talk about in them? Um, and, uh, you know, like how do you uh, have very difficult conversations with people when they when courses need to be corrected? How do you give praise properly and appropriately? Um, I mean, I, I just think like those are skills. I'm a person who enjoys learning. That's what Challenge Accepted is. And so like behind the scenes, those were things that I'm still a student of and will continue to be every single day that I have the privilege of getting to run this company. That's healthy. I think you, you should always be in that position. Yeah. You said yeah. something a minute ago that I want to I come back to. Uh, you, you separated, I love that you did this. I have very strong feelings on this subject. You said <laughs> uh, leadership and management, two different things. Oh, yeah, two totally different things in my opinion. Talk yeah. to me. Talk to me about that. I want to hear your, your thoughts. Um, I think that they both are dependent on one another. Mm-hmm. I guess like off the top of my head, not rehearsed in any capacity, if I had to, you know, separate the two and define where the lines are. To me, management is leading an individual to their greatest capacity within the goals of the company. And, and sometimes external to the goals of the company. It is mentorship. It is uh, really turning up the volume on an individual's capabilities for themselves. Leadership, in my opinion, is the vibe, the tribe, like the health of the organization, and the, and the but more than anything, the people in it. Mm-hmm. For me, everyone has their own type of leadership style. I like to lead from the heart and lead with like, what does the team need? How are things feeling? How can I and and our leadership best serve the people who work here? Because that's the only way this is sustainable. Mm-hmm. It's also obviously, you know, making sure cash flow is in the position it needs to be and, and, and uh, you know, that the vision of the company is clear and ideally correct based on the algorithm or whatever forces that are out of our control. But all of those things, in my opinion, go back to serving the team. Because if I make the wrong decision on what video to green light, that impacts the team. It impacts their their trust in us. It impacts the future of the company. If I make, um, you know, if I'm not on the pulse of the vibe of what's going on on set, you know, we we did a shoot about a month ago with 30 crew members, four days straight, Technically, that's like 120 lines on a call sheet. Mm. And I, I'm thinking at least about like, what is the food we're serving every day? Is it good enough? Is Because that that's a big point of like a crew's happiness. I, I just feel that um, those are things that I enjoy doing and they're my core competencies. So I like leaning into them. But I definitely have a lot of growing to do as a leader. And I'm... 
it's extremely daunting, but I am excited about it, I guess. I think <laughs> of it as, uh, I always do things in nautical terms when I talk about this. So I'm just going to stick with boats. Well, and we just went sailing yeah, with Sam, you're, so you're, I'm you're, very uh, attuned to the ship terminology. Michelle's newest video uh, on a pirate <laughs> ship. Uh, the job of, in, in terms of like the, the CEO-COO dynamic in, in that regard, leadership management, leadership is where are we going and why. Yeah. Management is how are we getting there. Yeah. And for me, understanding what my role truly is. I am an excellent leader, an excellent leader. I know, I know I'm great at that. I am the worst manager you'll ever have. I. Interesting. So you feel you're an excellent leader and you can be an excellent leader without being an excellent manager. I have excellent people to be excellent managers around me. I have. But do you, do you not manage the managers? No, we have a manager for that. So the only person who reports sort of to joking. you is the COO. Uh, is that on, the only one on online paper? You have I think that mainly. might be literally true, but the, it's it's set up specifically so that like we've got ninety people here, mm-hmm. and there are layers of things that that I should not be involved in, and there are layers of things that I do not understand, and I don't have. A, there's no room for me to offer value there or to make things better. So me being too hands-on with that is only going to make things worse. Absolutely, so, yeah. yes. And uh, a, a big learning of, of, of my own in this process of, of letting go. Yeah, yeah. I would say, I, I would answer it like this. The, dr- my dream version of my job is I get to walk into a room whenever I want to and, <laughs> okay. and add value and then leave. Mm. that's what I should be able to do. I shouldn't be necessary in that room, but my presence should make it better. And when I leave, things shouldn't fall apart. Things should already be good when I step in because great people are doing great things. I can step in, offer perspective, leadership, value, an idea or two from experience, step back out, trust them to execute. Yeah. That's my dream version of my job. Mm -hmm. And over this past year, we've done a lot of work uh, on what we've called an operations overhaul, sitting down and really looking at like, what are the parts of the business that are succeeding? What are the parts of the business that aren't succeeding? Who are we? Like spiritually, what do we do here? We're three companies in a trench coat. We're a little bit strange. Uh, And so figuring out like, what is the core mission and how do those three business units serve that mission and how do they serve that mission together and in what ways do they play off of each other and what roles do, do things Where do play? you get your education from for leadership? I'm, I'm genuinely curious. Like, did you go to a management training or do you have mentors that you lean on? Um, mentors and like, I'm surrounded by a lot of very smart people. And uh, for this in particular, our um, our former CTO, he left at the end of this process, but for a reason I'll, I'll get to in a second. He sort of spearheaded, here are the problems that we're facing operationally, and sat down with me and our CFO and our COO and a couple other people and like, let's build like a little operations committee and really evaluate what's working and what's not working. We go through this operations overhaul and we start developing, we start seeing patterns. And uh, Bradford, our, our, our CTO at the time, he had done a lot of this kind of work. And he's a guy who, uh, I, I sort of divide things into, there's build mode and there's run mode. He's mm. a build mode guy. He wants to build, build, build. Like he's really excited about making the thing bigger. When it's uh, stable, sustainable, then he's kind of like less excited. Mm. Um, and so our realization that from a technology perspective, Nebula as a platform will never be out of build mode truly 
like I don't I don't want to paint a picture that like it's just done and it's in maintenance mode or whatever. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that like the platform exists, the container exists. We will right. continually improve it. Of course, we will do. You've built the house and now on its renovations. Right. There's the there's years. there's okay. constantly new. It's software. It's never going to be done. Um, and we have an amazing team of engineers and product people and designers working on that. Um, for him, as a CTO, it was kind of like, well, you don't need a visionary CTO now. The path for this is established. We understand the technology. The technology problems are largely uh, defined, if not solved. And he wanted to go on and do more build mode things. So he's doing like consulting work and stuff now. We're still friends. We were friends. Uh, I knew him uh, through people before this. I spent a lot of time with him before he worked here. Um, and we'll expect to continue hanging out with the guy. I love him to death. But it was a lot of his experience in those conversations of saying like, when you approach building a team, here's, here's a problem I'm seeing. Here's how I've solved this in the past. And here's the pattern. And through doing that, we kept seeing things like, we had a problem with our um, production people and one of the creators weren't getting along. And it was a creator who very heavily used the production team. And there was this like, these people over here were grumpy at these people over here. And there was like, people were looking to just like, I can't take this job anymore. I'm leaving. I can't deal with these people. And so I step in and I'm looking at it and I'm, I end up on a call with, you know, the, like a, the, the people from both sides. And after the call, I'll talk to the creators, like, what do you think of this? And I said, I don't think you're an asshole, but I get why they do. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they're mm-hmm. assholes, but I get why you do. You're standing on the opposite sides of a chasm trying to communicate. And in, in doing so, like, you're yelling at each other, and now you sound angry. And, like, the whole thing just escalates. And the, the problem is a communications issue. So you saying this person's a jerk or this person saying you're a jerk, not that that's actually what was being said, but like the assumption that the person is the problem, that's not right. And so as we investigate that, we, we find that, well, it's not like this person's not an asshole, this person's not an asshole. So where is the problem? Is it a communications thing? Is it, it's is somebody the, process, the wrong job? Yeah. Or is it like just the process itself? And, and kind of breaking it down to, wait, that, that's kind of the division, isn't it? Like there's the process, there's the role, and there's the individual. Hmm. And I think as people, we tend to look at, if there's a problem, we look at the individual first. The individual is the cause of my, my friction. The individual is an asshole. They need to be dealt with. And then if they're not an asshole, maybe you're, they're your friend, maybe like their job just sucks or you know, something like that. And then maybe from there we can escalate up to, well, maybe the process is just broken. When even in this conversation, it seems so obvious. No, you start with the process. And then you look at, like, is the role not properly supported and resourced? Then is this person an asshole? And the answer might be that the person is an asshole. But it really sucks that human nature tends to be that we go to that place first. And so even looking at— I think that's at, a really interesting distinction, Dave. I really, I really like that, actually. I'm, I think we've, you know, found similar things in, in our situation, too, or, you know, looking at other creators' businesses, too, that oftentimes it's like— well, this person is is feeling a certain way because they're not set up for success. Mm-hmm. Because 10 steps prior to them, other people didn't hit their mark. Yep. And now they're the one, you know, cleaning it up. And I, I feel like that happens frequently. And that, in my opinion, is also the the recurring theme of what it happens to burnout too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's, uh, I'm now just going to like share all of my thoughts on this, sorry. Uh, the The thing that came out of that because when, when we unlocked process role individual as like a, 
as a, as a, as a, like a, a structure for how to think about things, going back to leadership versus management, tell me if this sounds familiar. You spend 90% of your time doing your job, but then there's like, you know, small company and you're scrappy and, you know, everybody's doing interesting things. You're trying to invent something new. You have your 90% job, but you also have your 10% job. Or maybe you have a 60% job and four 10% jobs or whatever. Like nobody just does one thing. You mean the 90% being like what one expects traditionally out of a CEO and then the 10% of time being other random things? Or, or, or anyone in the company. Mm. Uh, I think it's, for folks like you and me, that's always going to be true that we're going to be split like that. But when you think of like, I don't know, a motion graphics person or uh, Nick or like whoever on your team, like they have this job, but they've also taken on some additional stuff because just yes. those things need to be done. Well, yeah, I mean, operations is a, a great example of that because in an, in uh, you know a smaller company, operations include its operations, it's some management, it's also some technically like CFO mm-hmm. stuff yeah. originally before you have a CFO um, managing HR yep. s- type things, uh, contracts, et cetera. Yeah. So are you asking what my 10% is? Well, uh, <laughs> more, not, not for you, because I think that you and I will always have those. Yeah. But uh, what what I realized is that when you when you think about like an org chart and how you build your, your management structure, we tend to think of um, individuals. This person reports to this person, reports to this person, that sort of thing. And one of the big things that we did this year is we we rewrote the org chart to be roles-based. And what we found is with, a, with an individuals-based role, uh, org chart, we had an org chart with 90 people and a management structure. It's like, okay, well, where's the problem? Why aren't things working? And then we scrapped it and we rewrote it as roles-based. And instead of 90, we found that we had 300 roles. And there were roles all over the place that did not have oh, managers. like an areas of responsibility chart. Right, like your 90% job might be um, doing motion graphics, but you might also be tagging in 10% helping with sound editing. Well, if you don't have a person who is in charge of managing sound editors, then that person's 10% job doesn't have a manager or they might not have leadership. And if they don't have management and or leadership, they don't get resourced properly. Mm -hmm. So now your 10% job and your 90% job, you might be succeeding at the uh, 90% job, but if you're not doing so hot or if the 10% job is taking up more mental space, you might feel like you're failing overall when the truth is just like a little tiny thing over here on the side, your side gig just isn't resourced properly. And so when we built it out um, as roles-based and we could see who didn't have structure, who didn't have management, who didn't have leadership, who didn't have resources, we could start to see, oh, these are the people who are going to complain first because they should. These are the people who are going to um, underperform because of course they're going to because we're not supporting them properly. Mm -hmm. And so we started putting things in to support those roles and everything has gotten better. That's awesome. And another cool side effect of this is that when you can lay things out like that, 10% jobs often turn into 100% jobs. They do. (laughs) Uh, So when you know what they are, you can plan ahead for hiring. Yeah, yeah. You know that in six months, this is going to keep getting bigger. You know that you need to plan now and resource for making that a full-time job. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's been an absolute game changer for us. But uh, your your original question of like, how, how did we get any of this? I didn't go to school for any of this. I'm a high school dropout. I'm making this shit up as I go along. But I'm surrounded by people who are smart and have a lot of experience and working with them, spotting the patterns. We can apply things that, you know, I read in a book um, or uh, where we've learned 
how to solve problems in other ways, uh, applying them to this. But a lot of it is just the, the teamwork of it. Pulling in the experience of a bunch of people who have done interesting things professionally and have solved problems and who, again, have scar tissue. They've seen shit before. Uh, you get more clever solutions out of that. Yeah. When you were mentioning the roles-based chart, um, one of the most helpful things that we did this year was create an areas of responsibility mm. spreadsheet. And it's something I, I learned from a book I read. <laughs> but basically, it's a spreadsheet of every single thing that happens in the company. Mm -hmm. Like from greenlighting ideas, making the thumbnail, hiring freelancers. It's like building a matrix. Pushing go on payroll. Like every single thing that this company does in a given month is written. It's like hundreds of tasks. And what we did was we wrote all of those out, divided into like pre-production, production post, operations, business finance. And we started assigning like who is uh, the, the key person that does this action item and who's the backup person. And so when we did that, we realized, oh, wow, this person has a lot going on. We definitely, you know, it's time to hire. Or in that second column of the backup person who knows this task, we realized there were a lot of holes there. Oh man, there's only one person here who knows how to hit upload on the YouTube channel or has the password. Or mm -hmm. uh, there's only one person here who knows how to make the brief for the thumbnail designer. And what we did was we tried our best, and I still think there are some holes, but we have since then, you know, either hired new positions that have learned those mm -hmm. uh, tasks, or like we did something where, you know, hey, I'm going to pull aside Carissa and teach her how to do this thing that way. Like, if I am missing an action, dead or something happens, like, uh, this key can be turned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was super helpful. I, I think that's a slightly different approach, but the exact same philosophy yeah. behind it. Like mm -hmm. understanding what you what you get out of that is uh, a couple of things. One, understanding like where people need support, but you also learn like who are my A players? Mm -hmm. Who are the unsung heroes who are doing ten extra jobs that we aren't accounting for right now? And we saw when we did this, there were a couple of people where it's like, wow, that that person's kind of everywhere, and they have their hands in everything. We need to. One, take some stuff off their plate so we don't burn them out. And two, make sure we're re rewarding that because that person isn't complaining and they probably wouldn't complain. Uh, I'll call him out because he hates when I do it. Um, Simon, our chief creative officer, is the most amazing, talented designer I've ever worked with. And he touches creator thumbnails. He leads design for uh, Nebula itself. He uh, drives the creative vision of the company. There is not a thing that involves pixels that does not wow. have impact from him in some way or another. And when we like blow up the org chart and we look at like everywhere he is, it's like you could kind of take away everybody else and like you still got a map, right? Like if you uh, of where he is, you yeah, mean, like yeah. like a uh, like one of those uh, shots from from space of the U.S. at night. Like if you take away the <laughs> landmass, you can still see where the the cities yeah. are from the lights. It's uh -huh. like that. Wow. Like, like you can just feel that guy's presence everywhere, and you realize like, oh, we couldn't live without that guy. We need to hire some people so he's not doing so much work. And, and it just makes you um, approach things a little bit differently and uh, appreciate the people a little bit differently, which in I, I think for a job like mine, a job like yours, um, recognizing the value that other people bring, that this isn't... I think there's a, often a, an auteur approach that creators have. Again, I think it's like letting go of, of control or 
sometimes it's insecurity, but like not wanting to let someone else touch it. One of the most common pieces of advice I give to creators is go hire an editor. And 99 out of 100 times, I get the exact same response. Oh, no, my editing is the soul of my videos. I couldn't possibly let somebody else do that. Well, I think it also comes from um, a lack of education of how to pass things off. Mm -hmm. I think many creators, if they knew, and I don't even know this anytime we hire anyone for sure, but like if there was a 100% guarantee this person who you're bringing in is going to do it just as good, if not three times better than you, then push go. However, we've all, you know, experienced situations where you collaborate with somebody and it doesn't work like that, either because the person is not the right fit for the role or because, uh, you know, there's a lack of understanding of how to pass off the role. I think like that skill set of how to train uh, efficiently and effectively is is just like not readily available education in the creator economy. There's also like, and this is sort of an extension of what you said, but, uh, and this might just fit into training, but there's also people like, well, yeah, I tried hiring an editor one time and they didn't make the video exactly the way I wanted the first time, so I'm never doing that again. It's like, mm-hmm. so a, a trainee on day one didn't knock it out of the park the exact way you would do it, and so you're never going to hire? So like, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and I mean, in. like, learning how to give feedback is, and critical feedback, those are all things, like, uh, we're all still learning how to do. And it's not natural. You know, a lot of leadership is unnatural in many ways. And boundaries, setting boundaries. Mm-hmm. I, I, again, I, I attribute it to, and this, I, I always feel like it's it's a pejorative thing. I don't mean it this way, or th- this might come off condescending. So for anyone listening, uh, not my intent. Uh, but it's a very young industry, both in the, the this hasn't existed very long. The creator economy is a very new thing, uh, but also it's largely made up of and driven by young people who don't have a lot of professional experience. And what happens when you have a very new thing led by very young people is some of those skills just haven't had time to develop yet. And that doesn't mean anyone is bad or wrong. It just means that the smartest of us and I think the most successful of us over the next few years will be the people who took the time to learn either the soft skills or what does this sort of structure look like? How have people done things? There's a tendency in this industry to, I want to do thing. I'm going to go look at Mr. Beast. I'm going to go look at Michelle Correa. I'm going to go look at who are the successful creators? What did they do? And I don't see a lot of, I'm trying to build a structure like this. Is there anyone outside of this industry who has built something sure, similar? Sure, yeah, yeah. Why aren't we reading like business management books written mm-hmm. by restaurateurs? Why aren't we um, learning from from industries that are adjacent to or similar to our own? And and why are we only looking at popular creators who, honest God, may have just fucking lucked into it? Or maybe they they happen to have a really good operations person and they may not even, there's a lot of people in this business who I'm betting do not understand why they're successful. Is there anyone in any industry that we could turn to who might understand their own success? Or there might be generations of success that we can we can draw from. Why don't we see more of that? Honestly, I think some of it comes back to like, I don't know a single person who went through the traditional school system who enjoyed doing group projects. <laughs> and that's because okay. when you're yeah. given a group project, 
in in every situation in my case, it was here are your groups, go turn in the thing. Mm. There was never, ever education on here's how to work in a group. Here's how to delegate. Like the teacher workshopping with the group, like hmm. what's going well? What's not going well? Yeah. Like the, the technicality of group work is never actually taught. It's just assigned. And you're graded on the success of the group based on the outcome, not on the process of how the group works together. That's interesting. And that's why, you know, what happens? One person emerges, does the whole thing, and the group gets a good grade because of, you know, unequal work distribution. Um, and so what does that reward? It rewards, okay, if I want to succeed, I have to do it myself. If I can't convince the people around me to do it, they're just going to, you know, ride along anyways because they're a part of my group. They will receive the the same grade or whatever. Yeah. So I, I think like fundamentally what would be so great is not doing away with group projects that everybody hates, but for the teachers to actually teach how to do a group project effectively. And I don't even know if anybody knows how to do a group project effectively, but- You got to start um, somewhere. That would have been, I think like in the same way, like you never learn how to do taxes or yeah, what you yeah. can and can't write off or what a W-9 or W-2 or 1099, any of that is in the school system. We should learn all of that, especially in a, you know, in a society where work is so heralded as a centerpiece of capitalism, why is learning how to work not a part of it? That is interesting. As a part-time teacher who assigns group projects, this is uh, the timing of this. My, my NYU class starts up again in uh, a month. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, I teach uh, YouTube at NYU like half a semester a year. Uh, and I try to stay away from group projects because they, they're terrible. <laughs> like the work that people hand is just terrible. Um, but this might, be, this might be an interesting approach, handing the students a thing, like go make a thing, you're in charge of this part, you're in charge of this part, and here's how you delegate. Yeah. And just spending some time on that. I think it would be so cool. Like if, if I could ask for anything in a, in, a, in a class, it would also be like check-ins with the professor where the professor is just like, How's it going as a group? Like not like forget the mm -hmm. outcome of the project, but like what's going on interpersonally with you guys and what could be done better? That soft skill stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. I might I might take that and run with that. Oh my God, let me know how it goes. <laughs> I might have you come in and speak to the class. Oh, <laughs> oh no. Well, because uh, the my class, it's like um, 12 people. Oh, and so very it's, small, yeah, intimate. Not, yeah, okay. yeah, not a huge thing. And uh, sometimes because all the students are in Manhattan, but the classroom's in Brooklyn. So sometimes we just come in here. Oh, cool. Like, they get hands-on time with cameras and stuff like that. Oh, that's but really like, cool. Building, building some structure around like, okay, make a thing. Just divide into like three groups of four or something. That's 12, right? Yeah. Um, again, high school dropout. I don't know. <laughs> uh, have them divide up like that. And like, okay, you're in charge of the technical stuff. You're in charge of you know, this. You're in charge. You're on-camera talent. Like, mm -hmm. like figure out like... Um, the skill sets of the people involved, like build out the, the like a roles-based org chart and Maybe. build out like the, yeah. the matrix of these are the people who can mm -hmm. do these things and put them together. And that could be a lot of fun. Yeah, or you, yeah, or even like you guys assign these roles to yourself and who's the best at each core competency. You know what's going to happen though. What? You're going to have a clean division of the people who want to be on-camera talent 
and you're going to have way more of those. It's like if you take every student in a school and you say uh, group up and, into bands. Everyone wants to be the lead singer. Everybody wants ah. to play guitar. Nobody wants to play bass. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, I you sorry, know I, I don't know if this is the best. Uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm not really sure the, the structure of the class, but maybe it's not the the cleanest approach. Um, and yeah, having people pick their own roles could be hairy, I suppose. But <laughs> we're also making this up um, in real yeah, time we're, as we're talking about. It. I don't think we. But need to just solve this generally problem. speaking, I think it would be really cool for a teacher who assigns group projects to also teach how to be an effective, honest, caring, empathetic, and efficient and successful group. I'm, I'm thinking that uh, the, the process that, that my team has gone through over this year of like re- needing to redefine who we are operationally and think through like what are the pieces that work, pieces that don't work, how do we communicate, how do we change communication internally to, to facilitate that. Um, maybe applying that as a thing because I've been thinking about that a lot in, in terms of like, how can how could that help a creator? Like if we've learned this, and we we did, we went through with uh, Joseph from Real Life Lore, went through and said like, okay, what are all of the different roles? He and I, right out there in the kitchen, we grabbed a whiteboard and we tried it all out. And we realized that there's, he, he runs a company uh, of like 25 people. Wow. Except it's just him and like two others. It's like, okay, okay, buddy. Oh, <laughs> it's time for you to. It's the like that. It's all roles based. Yeah. Okay. And it's like okay, you report to you, report to you, report to you, and then these two other people, if if you get hung up here, you're not even to the part where they have the stuff they can be doing. Yeah. So they're waiting on you three steps ago, and he just looks at me and he goes, "Oh, yeah. Oh shit. It's like yeah. Okay. So wow. here's here's how we need to hire for you. Here's how we need to approach this. And we've we've been helping him build his team out, and everything is just getting super That's tight. That's great. Uh, so I wonder if there's there's lessons there that could be applied to uh, literally just students or, or I, I guess what I'm thinking about out loud is is there anything in the way that one might write a management book which is of zero percent interest to me for the things that folks like you or I learn how could we pass that on how can we help other creators or help students or whoever it is like what can we do to to get this out there a little bit more in an industry that that doesn't hasn't quite locked in on it yet it's a difficult thing to I think, like, provide resources around because uh, the conversations we're having apply uh, transparently to a small group of people in the full Do scope they? of the econ- greater economy. At present, I think everyone needs to have these skills so that when they're ready to grow, they already have it and they they know how to do so. Uh, but I think, like, you know, most people are like, I just want to be a creator. And being a creator, even as a team of one, you don't think of all of those things that you need to know then or later. Is step one then disseminating, like like helping to normalize the idea that you're only going to be a team of one for so long? Like that's not sustainable. Yeah. You don't retire as a team of one. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe somebody, I'm sure there's, you know, whatever edge case, but like most of us, if you're making YouTube videos for a living today and that's how you pay your bills, if you think that that's how you're paying your bills 20 years from now, you're probably not playing the game right. You're probably well, you not know, I doing... think most people when they start out, they just want to know how to play the game in general. Right, you that's know? what like I'm saying. They want to know how to figure out, how can I, you know, your dream is like, at least for me, it started with, man, it would be so cool to have a, a video reach an audience of this size. Oh man, you know, it would be really cool to 
get to make some money on the side doing this or to, you know, get to have ownership of my content uh, outside of whatever else I'm doing. And then as you grow to love it, it's like, oh man, I really, like I would give anything to be able to, you know, quit my job and this is it. Like, you know, each step is like a huge leap. And if I could have one dream come true, it would be, you know, I just want to support myself by myself with the YouTube channel. And then it becomes, oh, I, I want to grow this thing. And now I want to have a team. Now I want this. Now I want work-life balance. You know, like mm-hmm. you kind of learn those things incrementally and looking 10 steps down the line where these skills actually really come into play, you know. Do you think that there's a responsibility that we have as, as the industry matures if we have experience uh, do we just let the, forgive me, the next generation of creator figure that out on their own? Or do we put that out there and start like setting a tempo where maybe you do think about that early? Because one of the biggest challenges we face is the path from zero to successful YouTuber is not a clearly charted path. And there's a lot right. of tribal knowledge and mythology and frankly, bullshit that that is is pumped into the creator economy to tell people of you know here's how you do whatever um that's mostly not real well i think it's interesting you're bringing this up because i'm thinking historically there's never really been a way to chart a path for art a career in art Mm. Uh, from like sculpting painting being a part of film and TV in the traditional sense, like how many people in the early days of film and TV were just discovered at the mall, you know? Like that is not a replicable strategy to become a successful artist. And when you have a history in art of luck is such a big factor, what's interesting about YouTube is luck is absolutely a factor. Let's not ignore that. I would say However, less there's also, but there is process. There is a way to have kinetic energy to create your art without having to wait for anyone else to find you at the mall or an agent who, you know, thinks you have the right look or whatever. And so it's kind of the first time you can have some education around those things and an Mm -hmm. important opportunity for it. So I don't know if it's like an online course or- (laughs) Oh, good, more courses. Yeah, or if it's a, a seminar or honestly, like my dream- and I asked my YouTube partner manager about this. When, when I was trying to learn this, I, I, I called my partner manager and I was like, whenever YouTube has its next round of management training, can I just come and sit in the back, please? Like, Because obviously at an organization of that scale, they have it down to a science. Maybe, maybe I don't think anyone perfectly has it, but like they have a science, curriculum. Yeah, they have yeah, a yeah. curriculum on how to manage. That's not the same thing necessarily as we're talking about of also leading, but- they have those resources. And I was like, please, can I just sit in the back? And they wouldn't let me. But I think it'd be really cool for YouTube to offer some of those resources to creators um, and even, you know, provide that education. Like, Ken, I would, I would pay money to sit down with someone in YouTube HR and learn, like, give me all of the curriculum on how you train 
you know, someone in their early 30s who's becoming a manager for the first time and doesn't know how to do any of this. How do you do that? Now I want all the education when like, I want that same thing, but for when someone goes to the next level. I want that same education for the the tight-knit leadership summits at this company. Like, what does that look like? I, I, I would pay money to see all of that. And, and the, I don't know, like whoever, whoever's willing to give me that information, I would uh, love to learn it. Not just at YouTube, but like at any big successful organization that has process for this education, it would be so valuable to have. Yeah, I, I think that that's part of the, uh, for people who work in this industry now who have been through working for Fortune 500 companies, um, or at being part of a management structure, there's uh, there's things that you learn from that that you can apply to this. That there's you're not going to get any other way, and there isn't a clear you should go to this school. And then even if there is, like who's going to go do like a two or four year degree so they can be a better mm-hmm. you? Like it, it's it's a little bit muddy. And there's there's um, this is a, an industry I think that kind of runs on maxims and tribal knowledge and urban legends. Um, and there is a tendency to grab onto the uh, what I would call the tweetables. It's like if you, if you go to a conference talk, there's always that moment where the the speaker says something, and everybody like takes out their phone and they tweet the quote. Or <laughs> if the if it's a polished speaker and they know what they're doing, they like put it up on the the slides sure. so that you can take a screenshot. Mm-hmm. And you know, um, I did ten years of public speaking, so there's you sort of build your talk around, I know that they're going to quote me on this part. And there is a, if, if there's like a clever phrase or if there's a hook, you can get people to like internalize that. There's a thing that, that I don't know where it comes from, but it's, it's, they use it at Apple. DRI, directly responsible mm-hmm. individual. Yeah. And that's what we have on our areas of responsibility sheet. Who's the DRI and then the exactly. backup. <laughs> yeah. So like understanding on a team Who's actually in charge of this? Who who really owns this? Because at the end of the day, you do. At the end of the day, I do. But along the way, like you can't be in charge of everything. Yeah. You can be indirectly responsible for everything, and you are. And that is the the burden that you're going to have to carry. But you don't have to be directly responsible for all of it. You don't necessarily need to be directly responsible for any of it. On camera, I guess you you do, but. Uh, even understanding and internalizing that just as a phrase, getting that that into our heads over this past year uh, has has been game changing. Now we understand we could, we we have a thing that we can just apply this label to it. Well, who's the directly responsible individual? Oh, I don't know. I guess there isn't one. Shit, we've got a process problem. Let's go solve that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also think that just getting getting us excited about solving operations and process problems might be interesting. What's funny yeah. is I didn't know what we were going to talk about. We did not prep for this at all. The way that this show happens is we sit down and we just start <laughs> talking. And the fact that this has become like mostly an operations and how to do things conversation, it's I guess not a surprise, but like, why aren't there more of these? Because I, again, I think like, what's the best analogy? The best analogy I can give is saving for retirement. Most young people statistically don't think about that until, you know, many people get to retirement age and don't have a savings. Well, sure, that's Even future though, like, Michelle's problem. Exactly. And so to me, like so a lot of these issues we're talking about, yes, putting those uh, educational savings into your business bank account of, I need to learn these things at the beginning of my journey is a smart thing to do. But at the beginning of my 
business, man, do I just need to get this next video out. Mm -hmm. Like everything depends on getting this next video out, especially if you're a creator who's like fully bet everything on the house. Yeah. Um, and that is the most immediate problem. And as a new business owner, you're dealing with a list of hierarchical problems. And sometimes you never make it down to that wish list of education. It's like, I've just operationally got to get the south door. I have to give notes to this editor. I have to uh, call this person. I have to get the next video set up. Um, because if I don't, everything crashes and burns. And I think that's fair. I think it's totally fair for that to be the case. And the, uh, you know, taking time to sit down or go to a management training or even having time to read a freaking book, that is a privilege that many people uh, do not have when you are starting out as a creator. So I think that's why, like, there are people who know to save for retirement. First of all, having that knowledge is one mm. thing. Second of all, there are people in that same category who have the privilege of having the ability to save for retirement. Many people in America do not. Like, it's just, like, income, it's got to go back to the family. It cannot, you know, go into a savings account. Yeah, like, even, even food security is a privilege. Yes. Yeah. And if you don't have either of those things, it's it's got to go back into the bills. So I think it's very similar with creator education about business expansion because in that beginning, you don't have the luxury of being able to, to sit down and learn these things and do these things. And at the time, frankly, it's not the most emergent thing that yeah. needs attention. Yeah, going back to the the nautical analogy, in the very earliest days when it's like you on a plank of wood, you're just, you're, you've got your arms and you're paddling as hard as you can. And it's hard to imagine a ship. It's hard to imagine what it would be like to sit down in the captain's cabin and mm -hmm. think through like charting out the course because you're just out there paddling. How do you get from here to there? I mean, something I struggled with in the beginning after you know, being of the mindset that society put me in that like, if you ever even get, you know, a thousand subscribers, you're in the top X percent and it would be a one in a million chance that even that happens, mm. that to allow myself to dream to that scale when I first started this channel would have been like, what? Seriously? Are you like, you're telling me that could happen? That is so cool. And I also don't believe you. Because data <laughs> or even if shows you do, it's otherwise. Terrifying. Yeah, I mean, data shows many people who begin the creator journey will not maintain the creator journey for whatever reason. Um, That's okay, though. Like, the yeah. world doesn't owe you views. The yeah. world does not owe you a living in that sense. Uh, so, like, none of us are, are uh, well, <laughs> uh, none of us should be born into guaranteed success. And uh, to, to think that, like, you know, the American dream of if you put your mind to something, you can be anything you want to be. Well, no, you can't. Some people just aren't smart enough to be neurosurgeons. Some people are not uh, fastidious enough to uh, be the next great uh, whatever. I don't know. Uh, and some people just don't have, like, you might be an amazing artist, but if you don't have the relationship skills, you never get noticed. You never, your art never gets seen. And the democratization of, of internet content, like doing what we do, I think it's easier than it's ever been to make a living as an artist because the gatekeepers are gone. You put up a video, and if it's good, then there's robots out there finding an audience for you. You didn't have to do that legwork. You go start a podcast, the first thousand people to listen to it, you had to convince them to do it. Yeah. You put that shit on YouTube, you just hit the publish button. 
And there's robots well, out there finding people to watch it now. It's, it's more complicated than that. And Not by I, a lot. And I think it's, it's still very hard. It's I'm not hard saying to it's convince easy. the robots that what you're I'm not saying doing, it's, I don't know, but like. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying it's possible. It's Yeah, sure. You don't have it's to. It's possible. It, as, a, as, a, as a podcaster or as a painter, the first, as a painter to get one million people to come and look at your painting, you have to do a lot of work to yeah. go. And like that is years. True, yeah. As I mean, a, like Challenge Accepted is a show that I I don't know would have ever been greenlit at a traditional studio because yeah. it is so uh, untraditional. It's expensive. It is, uh, it, it, it's very uh, time consuming to make each episode. Um, so, I mean, yeah, the, the opportunity is, is massive for sure. Yeah, like an artist getting a million people to look at a thing versus uh, when you post a video, the, the first million views that your channel gets, how many of those people did you have to go and personally convince? It's just a, it's a wildly different, there's again, no guarantee of success. And that, that's sort of the point I'm getting at is the fact that it's possible to get a million people to watch something that you made in your bedroom without ever leaving your bedroom. That's nuts that that's possible. Yeah. That those tools are there for mm -hmm. us, that these structures exist. Uh, for all the shit that YouTube gets, I am a massive fan. None of this would oh, be possible yeah. without that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's crazy <laughs> to me that like the existence of TikTok further democratizes things, but kind of in the wrong direction. And it's crazy to me that that nobody is doing that a layer above. And that YouTube, rather than moving up market, like letting TikTok be entry level and YouTube moves into more prestige stuff, mm. YouTube saw TikTok and said, no, nah, we want to be down here. That's nuts to me. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not an engineer, so I don't know, like, or even like, <laughs> the the business of YouTube is so fascinating to me. I won't even like pretend to understand it, but, I mean, in the internet, anything can become the next big thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, I like YouTube Shorts. I think it's cool. I'm not against yeah. it. I just think it's interesting that that YouTube chose to move down market, not up market. Hmm. That they they went more mass appeal. Anyone can do this, and that that's apparently how they see themselves as this should be the place where anyone can make something. Yeah. And the fact that so, that, that YouTube as an organization would even care about that, and, and it makes it attractive them, to potential new creators for sure. To to see a a lower barrier to entry, you know. Not just a lower. Like, I guess what what I'm getting at is for YouTube the perception that anyone who wants to be a YouTuber can be a YouTuber, that perception is the most valuable asset they have. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's incredible because the getting discovered at the mall because you had the right look. Yeah. Um, working for, for you know, 10 years writing songs and playing shitty little shows before you get your record deal and then like you blow up or whatever. Um, those days are kind of gone in many respects. Now you're going to get noticed because you had a TikTok that went massively viral. There are metrics as, as like, if you're a TV exec or a movie exec and you're walking through a mall and you see somebody who has a particular look, like you've lucked out this much, but then you have to see like, is this person actually marketable? Do they have the yeah. personality? Do they have the chops? Do they have the relationship um, capabilities to, to actually do anything with this? And there's you know, still a lot of risk in, in yeah. how do you, like what, do, what good is that discovery beyond they have the right look? And when you, when you have the metrics of, watching a YouTube video and you can see this person is a superstar, 
well, you, you got 2 million views and they do that consistently. Well, shit, we know. Like the scouting is done. We know that they know everything that they need to know. And they've, uh, they're not just good on camera. They're good at consistency. They're good at like all of the different things, titles, thumbnails, retention, all of the things that make up a video and make a video successful on the platform. Uh, in the old days of television, like Johnny Carson didn't know how to run lights. He didn't know how to run a camera. Mm-hmm. That guy is, he, what we saw during COVID is these talk show hosts having to make their shows in their homes. They couldn't do it. Or the shows were shitty because we have all of these skills because we've had to out of necessity. Yeah. You've done something that, that um, so many people want to do building a channel that is successful. And I would say that your success is not in, in your view counts. I think your success is in perception. And that, to me, is what makes you so interesting as a creator. What you are doing is not big YouTuber. What you are doing is transcendent. Oh, wow. Why, you. why I'm interested in you as a creator, why I'm following the stuff that you're doing, is because my interest is in the gap between you know, step one is build a successful YouTube business and step 10 is like command a, a, a multi-picture deal at some movie studio. Where the fuck are steps two through nine? They do not exist. We have to blaze this trail. We have to figure these things out ourselves. This is what we have committed ourselves to. This is what uh, the machine we're building is trying to, to bridge that gap. And there are, there is no clear course. And uh, I'll use uh, space as my, my analogy. Like you can get like, rogue stars that have been ejected from a galaxy or just a planet floating through space, not orbiting anything because, you know, just gravity happened to do that. And I feel like the YouTubers who have gone, who've gone on to do more mainstream things are kind of these random chance, like fate just plucked them out of the ether and now they're doing another thing. There isn't a clear path and it's kind of random. And there's this weird, I'll switch analogies, thing uh, when Hollywood ever does come to us, they sort of treat it like it's the first day at prison. Just go up to the biggest, baddest what? motherfucker in the room and offer them a contract. Uh, like people people not. coming up to like uh, the biggest YouTuber and saying, let's do a movie deal. Like hmm. he doesn't want to do that. That's not interesting. Go find the people who are hungry and who have the chops who might be able to do something interesting and develop that talent. Don't just go to the most famous person you can find. It's a mistake they typically make. But then there's you. And what you're doing <laughs> is something that is much closer, I think, in, in form and presentation to what Hollywood would do. But you're doing it very clearly from a place of how we do things, how creators make things. Oh, thank you. That ability to, to sort of start bridging the gap between what you would think of as being like YouTube content versus what is mainstream entertainment. Not a lot of people are doing that. Not a lot of people are really trying to do that. Certainly not in the way that you are. What's your end game? What's your goal? What are you trying to do? What do you want to be when you grow up? You know, I I just actually came from another meeting where where someone asked me this question and it was so interesting to grapple with because I feel that every step of what I've done, I have been very focused on the next goal, uh, the next big goal, Mm -hmm. And then once that one is achieved, then looking at, okay, what's the view from this position look like now that I can see a little bit more of the board ahead? And so I I typically think of things in like a couple years ahead, but like where I'm going to be in 20 years, I don't know. Um, and I think 
it's fun to think in those terms. So you have a big North Star goal. But for me, some of those things are just so out of the realm of like, it's like trying to imagine deep space. Like I can look at pictures of it, but I can't like truly grasp it because I can't see it in front of me. It's mm. so big to imagine and to predict, honestly, even like the next year of my life is so in- <laughs> impossible to do in this I industry. I feeling. Um, if you could wave As, a wand, if you could, if, if I could wave a wand, what would you want to be? Like, what would you wow. in, in this moment? Because you're you're going to change, you're going to evolve. But like yeah. in this moment, if you could press a button and be someone else, be a different version of you, like skip ahead, like what comes to mind? If I could push a button and skip ahead, genuinely, and I and and like like if I if I knew this would happen in the future and it would bring you that, you know, like that feeling of hearing from myself in the future, genuinely. It would be my art has supported f- myself creatively, financially. It has supported the lives of many other people creatively and financially. And it has left a measurable impact on young women, the world, etc. How that manifests, I think, changes as the world changes. Um but like, that's really, that's really it for me. And I, I, I feel like I don't like some creators or entrepreneurs say, I want to, I want to grow my company to a thousand employees. I want to have you know, 300 million subscribers, et cetera. Those are amazing goals for those people. Mm. And for me, we have measurable goals of, you know, X subscribers, X views, X whatever. But that does not matter to me if the content does not follow the ethos of what, what we're doing. Um, and I, I, I feel that, like, the impact is, it just, it's everything for me. Because if we're not on that North Star of that feeling and that impact and net positive, nothing else will work. The views will go away. The subscribers will become uninterested. Our team will not, you know, be on the mission. Mm. And so I've noticed that the more I center in on mission first, the better everything else does. The more I focus in on our core competencies are super high quality content, excellent storytelling, taking complicated concepts and making them digestible, uh, art, you know, our, I think our team is excellent at collaboration. When I lean into those things, everything else makes sense. Do you think that the things you make today, people will still watch 20 years from now? I hope so. I can't control that though. But what I can control is that the things I'm putting out are ones I'm proud of and ones that I know that if they're shared, people will experience a net positive. I guess the the real question there is, is that a goal? Like, do you think about that? Do you think about making things that last, not just get the viral views, get the big view counts today, but like something that that has artistic merit and has a place in, like people, there's there's kind of two schools of thought on this. Like you go back, uh, the Ed Sullivan show or something, it's not still something that everybody watches today, but some of the most popular shows on Netflix were like Friends, a show that ended, what, 20 right. years ago? And it's because it's a story that people relate to mm-hmm. or aspire to or enjoy watching. And I think like storytelling is king every single time. Agreed. Shakespeare's works have been reinvented 
I don't know, like hundreds of times for modern films. And that's because at the core, they are good stories. Mm -hmm. The characters are experiencing things in a different time period than, you know, modern renditions of it would be. But I think like we're always leaning into, is this a good story? And if it is, we can hope that it matters and lasts. And we're very fortunate that like a lot of our top performing pieces of content are consistent in that like they are consistently found. Um, some of our biggest earning videos are videos that are like months or even years old at this point. And they continue to, I think because, and I'm going to brag about my team and it's primarily them, less so me, for sure, that they are master storytellers. I think like I am so blessed to work with like I think some of the best storytellers on planet Earth. I'm just going to say it. Period. Full stop. And I, you could put me on a lie detector machine. I would be like, yep, yeah, I think Garrett. Oh, no. I, yeah, I, like Garrett I is the I best storyteller you. I have ever met in my life. That is why I married him. Nick is one of, you know, the best producers I've ever worked with in my life. And, you know, better than many of of the others I've worked with on other sets too. And I, I just feel like it's a special, special thing. And... I wake up every day with gratitude. And so when you're asking about like the end game or the this or like the buyout or- Oh no, the, not in know. terms of exit. Yeah, well, I'm thinking yeah. more like the mark you leave on the universe, the, the this, Steve Jobs that, thing. Like, do you leave a that's, dent? That's what I want. Do you, yeah. do you care more about the things you make or the way you make them? The, like if you're gonna I think be, it's both. If you're going to be remembered for one or the other, would you rather your name be synonymous with this art or- uh, would you rather be uh, remembered for your name be synonymous with uh, a way of doing something? Interesting. I mean, there are many directors and artists who are heralded as fantastic artists who are not nice people behind the scenes or good people behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I mean, I just can't. I, I like, <laughs> I, 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 I don't. I can't sleep at night thinking like that. I mean, I think that team comes first, well-being comes first. Mm. And when those things are prioritized, everything else gets better. If you if you set the team up for success, if you, you know, make sure the turnarounds are 12 hours and the quality of the food on set is good and that there are breaks and we're thinking about, okay, this cam up is going to need, you know, time after a long handheld roll to relax and reset. We're shooting on a ship. Okay, we need to build in time. What if people get seasick? You know, you're thinking about those things. The people who are the artists become better at the art because you're giving them a better canvas and a better studio to work in. So what you want is to be the sort of player that makes the rest of the team better. Every time. Because I'm, you know, I think very fortunate to work with people who are far better at things than me, um, quite frankly. And I think my role as a leader is to give them the the best canvas, the best paintbrush, the best everything I possibly can. Not only because it, you know, it makes great videos and the videos do well and that benefits the whole team and the company, but also it just makes better art. And better art is shared more frequently. It is remembered more and really going back to like people don't remember what you say or what you do. They remember how you how you feel. And I feel like I want people to leave our content 
feeling something. Mm. Um, and not in take- like a forced way, but like I want people to be challenged, to think differently, to feel differently, to approach things differently. And if I can encourage someone to slightly shift their, you know, previous path of life via inspiration or otherwise, then I think I, you know, we've done our job for the day. I think that you take this approach on a personal level too. At least what I've seen is it, again, uh, polished but not rehearsed. What I see from you is a real commitment to you want when when uh, the experience of you. I think about this a lot uh, for for me. Like, what is the experience? Like, every minute of my day, anytime I'm interacting with somebody, that is part of the experience of me. I am my own user experience. What impact am I having in this moment? In this moment, and I'm second guessing every fucking thing I say all day long because of it. It's it's, it's a nightmare. But uh, there is an element of like, I think it is healthy to be aware of the impact you're having on others. It is healthy to be aware of, and not everyone cares. Not everyone thinks about this. Um, I think the thing that that uh, maybe I envy about you and why I, I, I call this out so much in, in this conversation is that you're just so good at not making that feel like, you're, good at, you're so good at making the people around you feel good, but without making them feel like you're putting on a show. You're not, you're not performing uh, being happy to see somebody. You just are that happy to see them. Well, I just don't see people I don't like, honestly. <laughs> there's, so there's, there's a, a, a guy named uh, Cable Sasser. Years and years ago, he's, he runs a company called Panic. They're a software company, and now they're doing game stuff. The, the Playdate is their thing. Um, Cable is this amazing human being, uh, delightful guy. I remember being in a bar in San Francisco. We were at a conference, and there's a whole bunch of people sitting around. And um, he, he sort of became the center of attention, like everyone was listening to him talk. And there are people who become the center of attention because they make it all about them. And then there are people, I learned in this moment, there are people who become the center of attention because they just make everything about everyone else and make everyone feel good. And he became the life of the party because he just kept like pointing at people and like asking questions or talking to them. And it, it opened, watching him do that opened my eyes to, it doesn't have to just be me, 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 me all the time. Sometimes yeah. ask, Sometimes the best way to tell somebody something about you is by asking them a question. And I think you are really good as I, as I watched, especially last night at the premiere, the last night was the jet lag premiere, uh, the, there was a moment where you were talking to somebody and you're engaged and then you notice that there's a camera pointed at you and you light up like a, <laughs> like a phone going from sleep mode to screen on, like you're oh just on. God. And like you gave everything to the camera for that split second and then you're right back into the conversation. And there's this ability for you, I think, to um, be aware and like the the spirit of of uh, not performing in a negative way, but like being aware that you are a personality, and that there's you know there's a time to smile for the camera, but then you're not just so I don't know rehearsed that you're only thinking about the camera. You're mostly there for the people. You're going to do this part too because it's a job, and like you know I, I think for you, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but like a little bit like well, you just sort of train yourself to do that. Like there's a camera on, you kind of perform I don't for the know, camera. It's just fun. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Uh, but but it, it was it was not the you saw a camera you lit up. What impressed me was you went right back to the conversation. 
You oh, didn't of you didn't miss a beat. You were there for the people. <laughs> do the thing for the camera, uh, do the work thing, but then you're right back into yeah. the conversation. I don't know. I I I feel that I grew up in a very quantitative situation of grades, go to good college, get A's, you know, do this internship, do that, uh, you know, compete, compete, compete. Obviously, some of that comes out in the videos. I'm a very competitive person. But becoming a creator and honestly meeting the people on my team has has shown me that you can bring that energy to joy and to to love and to art um, and that you can have positive results by doing that too. I really admire that. I wish I wish I saw more of it in the industry. Well, it's difficult. I mean, it's uh, it's, yeah. it's like it, it comes from an immense place of privilege. Like I'm not going to sit here and pretend that like we went out and made exactly what we wanted every single video and then surprise, it was super successful. Absolutely not. We're definitely like looking at the algorithm, looking at what other people are doing. Anytime I release a video, I, you know, send the thumbnail to 10 other people and get their feedback and whatever. Like we're playing the game. You have to play the game to be Absolutely. successful. Um, it would be insane to think that you don't. But I also think like if you min-max it too much, you lose the heart. Yeah, you can't. And so, like, you can't I stop have being a to person. find like on a chart what is the max we can go in the YouTube direction, maintaining the heart, and what's the max we can go in the direction of heart while also playing the game. Mm -hmm. So you have to you have to do both. But head versus heart, art versus yeah, commerce. Yeah, exactly. It's always. But I I notice every time like you can never, in my case at least, lose heart fully because it feels awful and. Because transparently, you just, it doesn't work. Like people see right through it. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not successful on the platform. And you see that with like copycat creators. Mm -hmm. They rise very, very fast and they can fall very, very fast too. Yeah. Um, and people who truly outshine and who are remembered are the ones who are paving their own lane. And you have to do that by learning from other people, but also like, doing some deep introspective work on like, what is my competitive advantage? Yeah. Michelle, this has been maybe the most interesting conversation I've ever had on the show. <laughs> we Getting, didn't talk, I don't even know what we were going to talk about, but I, I hope people care about like management and shit like that. <laughs> 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 I guess we just went there. It's, it's something I, I'm, you know, we're NQ4, we're like, uh, evaluating the year, looking into next year, talking about all of these things, and um, our end of year wrap up show. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> Let's look back over we're the all quarterly. in the Q4 headspace yeah. of like <laughs> looking at cash flow reports and stuff. I'm like, oh, spreadsheets. Lots of lots of spreadsheets. Oh, thank you thank for you. doing this. this thank is, you for having me, Dave. It's, this yeah, is amazing. Great to chat with you and, and learn from you too. Uh, honestly, I could do like another five hours of this. <laughs> I'm, we're stopping because you have to get on a plane. I do. <laughs> so, so I'm glad someone's looking at the time because I wasn't. Uh, so th thank you, Michelle, for for joining us. Thank you yeah. for uh, uh, again uh, for those of you watching or listening. If you if you're not already aware, Michelle is the season eight special guest on Jetlag, um, up a week early on Nebula, and uh, I, I I hope there's a million things we get to do in the future. Awesome, yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening and watching, and definitely go check out Jetlag season eight on Nebula now.